0: This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast.
1: We are your study buddies for neonatology topics.
0: I'm Dr. Ben Korsha.
1: And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbeau.
0: Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. To the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Thursday. We are almost done this week, doing mm-hmm. ID. Today we're talking about the human immunodeficiency virus, also known as HIV1. Boom boom boom. All right, Daphne. You were saying you um Why
1: I was saying I was book? gonna start. Oh
0: no, you're just you're just like you're just shuffling out. You want to start? <laughs> Go right ahead. Go okay. right ahead.
1: So This is a long section. Everybody Mm. buckle up.
0: (laughs) Brace yourselves, people. If you're
1: listening to us in the car, you should already be buckled up. (laughs) All right. There are two types of HIV cause disease in humans. This is, I don't think, very high yield, but I thought it was very interesting. So there's HIV-1. It's present in three major genetic groups. M major o outlier and n new it exists worldwide um is a single-stranded rna virus Uh, hiv2 actually has a low prevalence in the u.s it has a milder course with a longer time to develop disease and so the hiv uh virus is a retrovirus that has its own reverse transcriptase again other things that are coming back from that medical school Rolodex. But uh, what the reverse transcriptase does is it uh, helps with the conversion from single-stranded RNA to double-stranded DNA. And then the DNA is then incorporated into the genomic host DNA and exists as a provirus. So that's what's so interesting about HIV. It infects cells Uh, particularly the helper helper T lymphocytes and macrophages, and it affects both antibody and cell-mediated immunity. It takes over the whole system. Um, And there is an increased risk of transmission uh, from mother to infant. Um, And the most common times of increased risk of transmission from uh, HIV-1-positive women to the infant is if, any of the following features. If there's a higher maternal viral RNA load, if this is a newly acquired infection during the last trimester of pregnancy, and this increases the risk of vertical transmission because primary infection is associated with a greater viral load, if there's advanced maternal illness, if uh, there are intrapartum events resulting in increased exposure of fetus to maternal blood, One of those things would be a fetal scalp electrode. There's increased risk with vaginal delivery, especially if prolonged rupture of membranes and in labor, and especially in the setting of a high viral load. And there's increased risk to the infant with breastfeeding. And so in the U.S., the recommendation is to avoid breastfeeding if HIV positive, because breastfeeding increases the transmission rate by 14%. Um, and the greatest risk of maternal HIV infection is acquired late in pregnancy or in this postpartum period.
0: And that's, now, and that's a key thing, right? That like in the U S right? That's because the is. risk of infant mortality uh, from infectious disease and malnutrition is low. Right. We don't recommend breastfeeding, but in low income countries it would be recommended to continue breastfeeding because there the risk benefit changes since the risk of infectious right. disease and malnutrition is much much higher like very much significant.
1: exactly um pre- the perinatal transmission rate without maternal medications so if there's a maternal infection and we don't treat The mother um, during pregnancy in the intrapartum period, the transmission rate is 22 to almost 26%, with the majority of transmission occurring immediately before or during delivery, and if outside the U.S., via breast milk, because they don't tend to have that stipulation. However, currently in the U.S., the transmission, the perinatal transmission is actually quite low, less than 2%. And this decrease is attributable to very good antenatal HIV screening of pregnant women. And that's why prenatal care is so important. A combined antiretroviral prophylaxis and most pregnant women infected with HIV receive a three drug regimen. The um, kind of, policy changes of cesarean delivery at 38 weeks completed gestation before the onset of labor and before rupture of membranes in women with a high viral load. Um, Women with low viral loads or undetectable viral loads um, can be delivered uh, via vaginal delivery. And the fourth in the U.S., again, because of the risk-benefit ratio, is avoidance of breastfeeding. The clinical symptoms um, are that the infant is usually asymptomatic at birth, um, but they become symptomatic by one to two years of age. Some infants may be ill in the first few months of age, while most others remain asymptomatic for more than five years. In the U.S., 15 to 20% of untreated infants die before age four with a median age of death of 11 months And 80 to 85% of untreated infants have delayed onset with milder symptoms and survive past age five years. Um, so most, even untreated infants, again, have milder symptoms with good survival rates, but we do have this, you know, almost a, a quarter um, that have early uh, death. Infants typically have shorter incubation periods compared with adults and a more rapidly progressive course. They have worse prognosis if the clinical symptoms are less than one year of age. The common clinical presentation includes failure to thrive, hepatosplenomegaly, lymphadenopathy, diarrhea, and recurrent infections, particularly bacterial infections as a result of early decrease in the B cell function. They may present with sepsis, pneumonia, meningitis, candidal infections, CMV disease, encephalopathy, or severe herpes simplex infections. A a PCP or pneumocystis carini pneumonia um, should is kind of like a hallmark uh, for HIV. And the majority of children uh, with HIV develop PCP during the first three to six months of age, so very early. It's the most common first infection in children in the U.S., which leads to a diagnosis of HIV. So if there's a diagnosis of PCP pneumonia, um, HIV should be the next test. It presents with fever, cough, congestion, respiratory distress, severe hypoxemia, increased LDH levels, and the radiographic findings of diffuse alveolar infiltrative pneumonia. Another potential complication is this lymphocytic interstitial pneumonia, also known as pulmonary lymphoid hyperplasia, which occurs almost exclusively in pediatric HIV-infected uh, population it can be asymptomatic with isolated radiographic findings or severely compromised with exercise intolerance, severe respiratory distress, and a greater risk of developing recurrent bacterial and viral infections okay i'll leave diagnosis to you
0: <laughs> sure so um, there's multiple ways to um, to diagnose HIV, right? Um, so right now, the AP and CDC recommend uh, routine HIV-1 testing for all pregnant women in the United States unless the patient declines testing, obviously. Um, for women in labor with undocumented testing, they should have a rapid HIV antibody test done. Right. Um, and if a positive result, it's ideal if antiretroviral therapy prophylaxis it is administered to the neonates within 12 hours. So what are we supposed to do? So if the mother is HIV positive, so you would test a neonate with DNA PCR within the first 48 hours after birth. You should not use umbilical cord blood because it's possible that you may get contamination from maternal blood. And this early testing will identify neonates with intrauterine infection and will allow for earlier combination treatment. HIV DNA or um, RNA PCR assay at 14 to 21 days of age, at one to two months of age, at four to six months of age um, should be done. And an infant is considered infected with HIV if two separate PCR samples are positive. I would remember that. If you have a non-breastfeeding infant that is less than 18 months of age, uh, there's a presumptive exclusion of HIV-1 infection if you have two negative HIV-1 DNA or RNA tests obtained at different time points when the infant is more than two weeks of age and more than four weeks of age, so you, right? So, like, for example, the kid would be three weeks old and would be six weeks old. Or if you have one negative hiv DNA or RNA test obtained after eight weeks of age. Or one negative HIV antibody test obtained after six months of age. So any of these combinations of testing and no other lab or clinical finding consistent with HIV infection, fine. But basically it's kind of I would probably remember the first one where a baby has to be two separate tests, one after two weeks, one after four weeks. Because you have to assume that if everybody is is diligent, why would you wait six months to test a kid, right? I mean mm-hmm. uh, technically uh, that, that I mean of course if you have one negative HIV antibody test done after six months, then great. But I mean who would say oh you know what we'll just check at six months and see. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's not really uh, not normal. Prudent, yeah. Yeah, it's not prudent. In non-breastfeeding infants that are less than um, 18 months of age with negative DNA or, or RNA PCR testing, definitive exclusion of HIV-1, so before we talked about presumptive exclusion, this is definitive exclusion, you need at least two negative HIV, DNA, or RNA tests obtained at different time points. This time, after one month of age and after four months of age, or at least two negatives HIV one antibody test at different time points after the baby is six months of age, and no other clinical findings consistent with HIV infection. so as you can see, the difference really between the two is that um, the two time points this time around they were two weeks and four weeks for the presumptive here they're like a month and four months. so obviously the later you can confirm two separate negative tests, then the 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 more conclusive the findings are. And then also before it was one negative test after six months here, it's two separate negative tests after six months of age. In infants with two negative HIV DNA-PCR tests, many clinicians confirm the absence of antibody to HIV-1 by testing at 12 to 24 months if these samples are drawn at least one month apart, considered uninfected. All right. So how can we do, what are the different tests that are available for diagnosis in the neonate? Uh, we have HIV, the HIV-1 DNA PCR, which is the preferred test to diagnose HIV, especially subtype B, in infants that are less than 18 months. You probably are familiar with this. This is what, I mean, uh, this is what we order as well. Um, It's very sensitive and it's specific by age one month, 30 to 40% of infants with HIV-1 infection will have a positive PCR by 48 hours of age, while 93% will be positive by two weeks of age and 95 by one month of age. If positive test is first noted within the first two days after birth, um, suggests that the infant may have been infected in utero. And if the first positive test is noted between two to six weeks after birth, most likely infected during the intrapartum period. Again, as we've said before, you should not test the umbilical cord. You could have cross-contamination. And um, that's pretty much it. We also have HIV RNA PCR, which has similar sensitivity and specificity as the DNA PCR in children that are less than 18 months. But the DNA PCR is preferred due to greater experience with the test. we also have other testing that involve antibody testing, like HIV1 IgG antibody, HIV one IgM antibody. And these are basically um, enzyme immunoassay, right? That are um, highly sensitive, highly specific in the case of IgG, uh, usually as an initial antibody test. Um, um, yeah. But IgG testing in general is considered not reliable in the diagnosis of HIV in a newborn because all newborns will have, as you can remember from immunology, uh, transplacental transmission of IgG antibodies. Um, And so they may test positive regardless of their HIV infection status. IgG antibody testing of the newborn may be helpful if maternal HIV status is unknown. In this situation, a positive IgG test of the umbilical cord of the infant can suggest that the infant was exposed at least to HIV, so that could help you sort of further along in case of an unknown status of the mother. And then um, IgG antibody testing is is also useful to diagnose HIV in children over the age of 24 months. Um, In terms of IgM antibodies, um, it is more sensitive for the diagnosis of HIV infection than IgG antibody concentration. However, it's not recommended in newborns because the high amount of maternally acquired IgG antibodies may interfere with test results. Uh, Finally, we have HIV-1 culture, which is more expensive, less sensitive, not readily available, takes a long time. And there's also another form of testing called HIV-1 p24 antigen, which is a specific yet less sensitive test compared to the DNA PCR because um it's basically measuring these P24 antigen and they can sometimes be they can be low concentration of these p24 antigen in 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 asymptomatic infants. Um, so you may have false positive under the age of one month and you can have variable results. It's usually not currently recommended. So far so good. Clear as mud. All right clear as mud. Um, in terms of um, antiretroviral medication during pregnancy, um, there are several classes. I mean, there's a big table on page 105. We have the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, the NNRTIs, which includes niverapine, efavirenz, etravirine, it- rilpivirine. And then we have the NRTI, the nucleoside analog reverse transcriptase inhibitors. These include your zidovidine, abecavir, diadenosine, m-tricetabine, lamivudine, stravidine, tenofovir, and so on and so forth. Um, there's also protease inhibitors, entry inhibitors, and integrase inhibitors. And I'm not going to pronounce all these, all these medications. All right, so let's talk about the management of the neonate born in the United States to uh, or high-income country to an HIV-positive mother. The one thing I would say is that these guidelines are constantly changing. So we're going to go what is uh, based off what's in the books. But we suggest you you, you uh, review the latest AP recommendations and the latest um, NIH recommendations. So um, obviously, this is these are the infants that you would not defer bathing, for example. So you would bathe them. You give them their first bath early on. Um, and as we mentioned before, Breastfeeding is contraindicated in high-income countries. Now, what are some of the clinical scenarios, and what should we be doing? So, the mother received her standard combination of antiretroviral medication and has a controlled maternal viral load. So, if that's the case, then you administer zidovudine um, and you continue the course for four to six weeks, right? And you monitor for anemia. You monitor for LFTs. Um, yeah. And so these are considered. Low risk, um, low risk scenarios. Okay. Now, in the case of a high risk scenario, which is a, a, a baby that has a higher risk of of acquiring the disease, then you would do a six week course, but this time you would use a combination of antiretroviral treatment, and usually these include the dolutegravir, the um and and the that's it, these are the two that would be recommended, sorry. And then if you, in the case of a confirmed neonatal diagnosis of HIV, you would treat within at least three antiretroviral medications, usually one protease inhibitor, and then two reverse transcriptase inhibitors in infants that are less than 12 months of age, independent of viral load or clinical findings. Um, Another interesting uh, recommendation that is mentioned here, all HIV-exposed infants should receive PCP prophylaxis with Bactrim four to six weeks of age until determined to be uninfected. And for those infants with HIV infection, Bactrim should be continued until one year of age. Uh, Continue prophylaxis really dependent on the CT4 count of these infants. Um, Postnatal follow-up at two to four weeks to monitor adherence to medication and assess for anemia, especially something that is a risk with zidavidine treatment should be arranged all right i think that does it for hiv i think you're muted Mm -hmm.
1: sorry do we have time for a question yeah let's do one uh maternal fetal medicine question 58 an hiv positive pregnant Women presents to the emergency room in labor, all of the following are known to increase the risk of transmission from an HIV1 positive woman to her infant except. Is it A breastfeeding? Is it B maternal CD4 lymphocyte count less than 200? Is it C newly acquired infection during the last trimester? Is it D positive group B strep status? Or E prolonged rupture of membranes? What are we which looking one, for again? Which one is not like all of, uh, sorry, all of the following increase the risk of transmission, except.
0: All right. You said breastfeeding mm-hmm. in them? <laughs> yeah. You said something about
1: breastfeeding? I did say breastfeeding. Yeah, breastfeeding increases the risk. I know. <laughs> You're trying to pick the answer. <laughs> the except the answer. <laughs> Which one does not increase the risk?
0: Okay. Uh, okay. I, I need to pull up the question. I'm so sorry. I've lost what... you today. I'm, 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 I'm How post- about uh, I
1: answer the question today? No,
0: no, tell me the question, the question
1: number. I'm so sorry. 58. 58, <laughs> ID. Maternal know right? uh, you, you, You're
0: going in MFM, of course. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's not in the... All right, so our choices are breastfeeding definitely increases the risk of transmission. Maternal CD4 count less than 200. Yes, newly acquired infection during the last trimester. Positive group B strep or prolonged rupture of membrane. Um, hmm, CND are tricky. Um, I would say deep positive would be strep. I'm gonna stick with my answer there.
1: Correct, so that's the accept answer. Um, uh, transmission of HIV can occur during gestation, during labor and delivery, or postnatally via breastfeeding. In the non-breastfed infant, about one third of transmissions occur during gestation. The remaining two thirds occur during labor and delivery. The level of maternal serum HIV 1 RNA is a critical determinant of both intrauterine and intrapartum uh, mother to child HIV transmission, although there have been cases of transmission despite low or undetectable maternal viral loads. Other important factors known to increase the risk of transmission include advanced maternal disease, a low CD4 count, a primary HIV 1 infection rupture of membranes more than four hours prior to delivery, so prolonged rupture, choreoamnionitis, vaginal delivery, breastfeeding, invasive obstetric procedures, and prematurity. So group B strep status does not impact um, uh, transmission
0: All right, of definitely. HIV. Okay. We're finally finished this episode. Good God, that was long. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to NICUPodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NikUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.